Our text is going to start on page 839 of your Pew Bible. And what I want to do is remind us where we've come from and then summarize where we are and then really get us where we're going, which is to battle the demons again. From the start, Mark has shown us a Jesus Christ who is uh, no man's fool and certainly no man's coward. He, He faces everything head on. He goes straight toward conflict. He doesn't shy away from it. And what happens is that because he is truth and light, uh, the darkness starts to expose itself. There's like cracks in the sanity of the demons, and they begin to shout. Whenever he shows up, there's the Son of God. And this leads to him casting them out. And this is such a focal point for the way that Mark has been telling the story uh, that uh, it almost slips by unnoticed. But again, Uh, What happened most recently, um, if you missed the Wednesday night readings, uh, he sends the 12 apostles. Not that big a deal. Happens in all the Gospels. He calls 12, names them apostles. But in Mark, uh, he says to them, go and preach and cast out demons. In the other Gospels, he says, like, go heal diseases, preach the gospel to the poor. There's a bunch of other stuff thrown in. Mark just says, oh, yeah, yeah, preach and the demons. And remember, this is how Jesus himself appears in chapter 1, preaching and casting out demons. So there's a, there's a hyper-focus on the reality that our enemy as humans, our enemies as mankind, primarily are not other humans. Whenever other humans are doing evil, they are only doing so as pawns of the abyss, pawns of the hordes of hell, pawns of the demons and the devil himself. And today's text, again, is is not only going to show us that Jesus is powerful to to save from such darkness, but but more than that, he's not even phased. So we're going to get to this, but these these three parables that he's going to tell, we just heard them read. You can kind of summarize the point of them like this, that that Jesus isn't going to hide. And Jesus isn't going to stop. And Jesus is going to surprise you. He's going to surprise everybody. He's surprising the demons by showing up. When they scream things, he walks right toward them. He won't hide. And he doesn't stop until they're cast out. And this is not just what he's going to do a couple of times to a little area in Judea a long time ago. This is what he is doing to the entire universe by binding that strong man, Satan, so he can plunder his house. Jesus just talked about that last week, I think. Do you you remember this? Uh, Jesus, again, calls these 12 men in order to cast out demons. And the next thing that happens is the Pharisees start saying, Jesus has a demon. So which one is it? Is he casting out demons or does he have a demon? And that's what he says. Which one is it? Because uh, if you're going to bind a strong man to take his stuff, you got to do it. Again, claiming that that's what he's here to do, to bind the devil, right? That whole thing happens around the time that his mother and his brothers are coming because they think he's a little off his rocker, right? Remember how all that took place last week? And then what we saw midweek was his main teaching response. He's healing. He's casting out demons. Crowds are coming. The Pharisees don't like it. The Herodians don't like it. The scribes don't like it. His family doesn't like it. What do you have to say for yourself, Jesus? He says, a sower threw seed on the ground, and some fell on the path. And some fell on the rocks, and some fell on the weeds, and some of it grew. That's what I have to say for myself. I'm going to go back to the house. And he goes back to the house, 
And the 12 who are sent to cast out demons say, what was that about? Doesn't make any sense. And he tells them that he talks in stories so that if you don't understand what he says about the kingdom of God being him, then you're just going to be confused by everything he says. But if you have the key to the stories, which is that Jesus is the king, Jesus is the son of God, now these stories aren't confusing at all. They're very straightforward. They're very straightforward. So, for example, in the parable of the sower, uh, the sower sows the seed. That seed is the word of God. Uh, That means that God is the sower, right? Jesus is the seed, or perhaps Jesus is the sower and his preached word. The Bible is the seed. Take it either way. They're both true. But when this word from God that is living and active and the source of life and light and holiness and righteousness and all these things, When it enters into the current fallen creation, one of four things happens with regards to how humans hear this word. And and the first of them is that they hear it and they don't even like, well, not even at all. That's the path, right? The seed falls on the path. There's no soil to sprout. The ravens come. They eat it all up. Basically, the devil takes away. He says it. The devil takes away the word from their hearts the moment they hear it. You ever had that happen? I remember uh, uh, I spent a lot of time in my first call uh, at a coffee shop downtown uh, getting to know the owner who was a Chinese immigrant named Mark. And uh, I really liked Mark. We had lots of conversations, but I never really pushed Christianity on him, but he, he knew I was a local pastor and I was there to do mission work in the area. And one day he does say, he says, I want to know, tell me. Uh, let's, he gave me a coffee. We sat down, we spent an hour and a half. And he said, just tell me Christianity. Give me the whole thing. Oh, I've been waiting for this one, right? This is why I went to school for. And so I laid it out to him. And we, I, I gave him the best full law gospel presentation and who Jesus is and what he means and all this stuff. And he listened with rapt attention the entire time. At the end, it's like, does it make sense? Oh, yeah, it makes sense. Do you like it? Oh, yeah, I like it. What do you think? Oh, it's a nice story. It's a nice story. That was it. That was it. That's all, that's all he ever had. It was a nice story. So the, the raven came and took it away, right? I, I can't make the words work better in a heart that is a stony path. And, and so also uh, the soil that is filled with stones or rocks, it's not been plowed, right? And then uh, the soil that has the weeds in it, these are similar situations, but they're different because uh, the, the, the path, this is really a non-Christian ultimately. Uh, in the weeds and the rocks, you have faith begin. The word comes and they don't reject the word outright. They, they actually receive it with joy, he says. But then one of two things destroys the faith. And those things are opposites. Uh, one is persecution and suffering for the faith. And the other one is the cares and anxieties of, of life. Uh, pleasure, basically, right? The pursuit of pleasure or the avoidance of suffering. And if these things matter more to you than the truth of the word of God, well, then your faith tends to get choked by that. You let go of the word rather than holding on to it. But the good soil where the word grows is those who, it's pretty simple, hear the word of God and keep it. Now, we spent a lot of time on Wednesday trying to make sure you don't hear that and think that therefore you have to try to become the good soil. That is not the point of the parable. You're not supposed to try to be the good soil. Are you listening to the parable? Yes or no? Yes. Uh, Are you listening to the explanation of the parable? Yes. Do you want to know the answer to what the parable means? 
Yeah, well, then you're the good soil. Like, there's not even a question. Jesus is the word that has been sown into your heart, and you're listening to him because he's your God. No question again, right? But, but to those who are outside, to those who don't know that Jesus is God, now the parable of the sower is kind of a, not, it's a tough nut. Am I the good soil? How would I know? And what about the cares of life, right? Uh, do I fight the doubt? It becomes a doubt-creating scenario, right? But the parable for the Christian should be a, a hope-creating scenario. Well, you want to know what the kingdom of God is like? You don't think Jesus is it? Guess what? The good seed's going to get sown. It's going to grow. That's what's going to happen. And then the next parables affirm this same idea. So this is where we heard it read a little while ago. If you would turn to uh, verse 21 in chapter 4, right? Um. He tells them this story. And actually, uh, we're going to skim here for a moment. So can you see how uh, in verse 21, you have, he says, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket, right? And, and then in verse 26, he says, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground, okay? That's a second story. And then in verse uh, 31, he says, the kingdom is like a grain of mustard seed which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds of the earth. So, so we have three stories here, right? All of them building on each other. But now look at verse 24. He said to them, pay attention to what you hear. From verse 24 to verse 25 is not a story, but it's in the middle of the three stories. It's like it's the meat at the heart of a sandwich. And to show you that Mark is kind of doing this all the time, Let's skim back again here. Uh, can you find chapter 4, verse 1, the parable of the sower? You see that there? Uh, and, and that goes down to verse 9, where he says, He who has ears, let him hear. And in verse 10, he, he's asked about the meaning. And then he doesn't explain the parable until verse 14. But in between the parable and the explanation, he gives this little bit about how to you has been given the secret of the kingdom. There's the meat in the middle of the story, right? And and Westerners, we don't think this way. We don't look for the big nugget in the middle. We look for like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, right? Uh, we, we follow the timeline all the way to the end and find the climax at the conclusion of the story. But that's, that's not how the ancient world or the Near East even today uh, really do it. They're more cyclical in the way that they think. You can see this here in Mark. What does this mean? It means that these three parables we're gonna look at next all carry the same meaning as that nugget in the middle and that they're going to build on that idea to give you hopefully hopefully um, some hope in the matter uh, because what this nugget means is that if you have faith at all which i proved it to you a moment ago you're listening to the word of god you want to know what it means well, it's guaranteed you have faith if you have faith at all guess what you're going to get more to he who has more will be given that's a promise. That's not a maybe. It's a promise. So let's look at this here again. So all the way to chapter 4, verse 24, this middle section, not the parables. He said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Pay attention to what you hear. To the one who has, more will be given. 
all of the parables around this are going to drive at the point that where Jesus is doing his work, he's going to keep doing his work. And so if you have been awakened to believe that he is the Christ, the son of God, he swears to you that the kingdom of God is such that it's not going to hide from your life. It's not going to stop entering your life and it's going to continually surprise you with what you couldn't have expected your life to be, but it's going to reveal God's life for you is. So, so he says, pay attention to that. Yeah. Pay attention to that. Since you know that those who hear the word of God and keep it are Christ's people, well, then do that on purpose. You're already doing it, maybe accidentally. God broke into your life and gave you faith. Now he says, do it on purpose with a little bit of a a warning. Um, Middle of verse 24. It's not really a warning, though. I think it's good news, too. Uh, With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. So that still more will be added to you part is is the grace. You're going to get more faith than you deserve. But with the measure you use, that's the measure you're going to get too. Uh, And he's not saying he's not going to give more grace. He, He said that. But in the meantime, if it's down to like how you're doing, if you're going to just kind of put a small amount of heart into your faith in Jesus, then you're going to receive a small amount of courage from your heart. If you decide to put a great amount of heart into your faith in Jesus, you're going to receive more courage. What does that look like, though? And let me just make it really, really clear. There's a, there's a wonderful habit in the Missouri Synod. Many, many people have a wonderful habit. They read a devotional every morning. We publish one. We buy it for you. We put it out in the back. It's called Portals of Prayer. This is a devotional, again. What it mostly is, is every morning there's a single Bible verse, and then there's a paragraph with some story of kind or other, sort of hopefully giving you something that the Bible verse said in a different way. Okay? So what I want to suggest to you is that if that's the measure of what you call reading the Bible, then you're not going to get as much out of it as if you said, read a psalm every day, read a chapter from a gospel every day, read a chapter from the Old Testament every day, and read a chapter from Paul every day. You do those two practices right beside each other with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. You want the word of God in your life? You want the Holy Spirit in your life? Well, then put the word of God in your life. Huh? And yet more will be added to you. Don't think this is something you got to do or else. Think, oh, I can, I can actually try. Cool. That's good. God, God is in charge. He's going to win, but I get to try. Like it's a both hand. It's a win-win for all of us here. Huh? To the one who has, more will be given. Expect that you are the hearer of the word of God. Expect that asking God for wisdom, he will give you more. And know that that will come in your knowledge of the scriptures over time as a gift. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, you hopefully have enough of the key to the parable to know the one who has not has not what? Somebody tell me. What does he not have? Faith. So the guy who doesn't have faith, even what he thinks he has, it's nothing, it's shadow, it's fire, it's gone. Those are those who don't don't know the keys to the parables. All right, so the parables, these are about Jesus. They're about who he is, right? First parable, verse 21. He said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed 
and not on a stand. That's it. The rest of the text there is going to explain this. His parable, his riddle is just a question. Don't you turn the light on so that you can see? And, and I, we're supposed to say like, yeah, of course, Jesus. All right. So, so what do we do with that? Well, Jesus is really saying, I'm the light and you're not going to be able to not see me. Nah. What do you want me to do? Hide? I'm not going to hide. I'm the son of God, right? And not me, Jonathan. You, you know what I'm talking. I'm, I'm giving the voice of Jesus here, right? He's not going to hide. And so what's he say next? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. There is anything secret except to come to light. Uh, you might remember I've brought up this so-called Markin secret. Um, it, it, you'd have to be kind of one of the nerds to, to remember this probably, but there's this whole argument about why Jesus and Mark is always telling people, don't tell anybody about me. And I think maybe some of the answer to the Markin secret is him saying right here, like, you know what? You can try to hide me. I can even tell people not to talk about me. Guess what? Just makes them talk more. You can't hide the light. Yeah. Verse 23, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. It's the second time he said that. He said that after the parable of the sower. It seems to be something that Jesus says to mark an ending of sorts. So maybe there's a bookend here with the parable of the sower, but now we got this little nugget that leads us into two more parables as well. We did the nugget already. Skip down to verse 26, the second of the three parables. He said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Now, last time that was the end and we had an explanation. No explanation, just more story. He sleeps, the, the man who scattered the seed, and rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows. He, the farmer, knows not how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Next verse, he's going to change the story again, go to a new story. So he doesn't explain this one, but he goes into a great deal of detail. I mean, all that bit about the earth producing the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear, you can make quite a bit of hay with that on a couple of different levels. Is Jesus being poetic? Uh, there is a hymn that I think is a Thanksgiving hymn that in fact makes use of this very line. Yeah. And so it, it is poetic uh, or, or is maybe Jesus is being scientific. You know, look at how much he knows actually. Right. I mean, the, the, he's aware of how reality works. Um, and then he connects the whole thing to the harvest, which of course has got theological meaning. Right. The, the harvest of mankind from the devil's clutches is very much what the church is. Right, We're being harvested. Um, but in all of this, none of that's really the point. Right? The point is that little bit in the middle, end of verse 27, how he knows not how. That's the point of the story. The kingdom of God is like this guy who does this thing and it works, but he has no clue how it works. It just works. And so he just does it. Because it works, right? Which the way I would encourage you to, to hear this, is Jesus is saying again, the kingdom of God, what's it like? It's like something you can't control. It's going to do what it does. It's not going to stop. And it's going to be life again. It's going to grow. So you can, you can walk away and come back. God's kingdom is still going to keep doing what it does. Yeah. 
Now we've done two of these. I'm going to repeat my little refrain here because I think it's really worth holding in your heart this week. Not going to hide. Not going to stop. That's Jesus for you. And then that's also Jesus in you, too. Uh, pretty cool, really. Uh, next parable. He changed it. One more story. One you're probably more familiar with. Uh, he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds of the earth. Yet when it is sown up, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And then little conclusion here. Uh, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable. But privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Parable of the mustard seed. I, I think the, the heart of this parable is just as easy to see by talking about the difference between a seed and any plant. If, if you had never seen a flower before, ever, and I said, I'm going to give you a flower, and I gave you a seed, you'd be like, why would you give me this? And I said, put it in the ground. You'd be like, why? Just trust me, put it in the ground, right? And then out comes this flower, you know, a couple weeks later, a couple months later, whatever. Here's the flower. Could you have ever imagined that was what was going to come out of that seed? You could never have seen it, right? Never. But it was there, right? And so that's kind of the point of the mustard seed here. He's just going to emphasize the smallness versus the greatness, okay? Uh, that you have this little tiny seed that becomes about a big, as big as this pulpit. But they really, I mean, it's not as big as an oak or anything, but it's large enough that birds can nest in the branches. And if you're going to talk about garden herbs, it's the biggest herb you'll ever see. Yeah. Uh, so, but the point, the point is that you can't tell what it is until after it does what it's going to do. So three parables, not going to hide, not going to stop and going to surprise you. That's the kingdom. Jesus, we think you're crazy. Jesus, we think you're the devil. Uh, not going to hide. Not going to stop. And going to surprise you. This is answer to the crowds. Yeah, Quite a thing. I, I don't know. Maybe that's what gets you going. That makes my blood tingle a little bit. I get excited. Because I like thinking about how, again, the same Jesus is not going to hide today. He's not going to stop today. He's going to totally surprise us today. His mercies are new every morning. He is guaranteed that his Holy Spirit moves among us according to this word. He's told us that the, the devil's going to rise up against us by wile and great might, by trickery and craft, lie and deception. And he's sworn by an oath that his angel armies are with us so that nothing can conquer us. Now, though the hordes swirl around with billowing smoke and try to upset the ark of God's covenant, the body and blood of Jesus' heartbeat goes on as the supper feeds us, pulls us, binds us, joins us to an eternal reality that, that again, it's not going to hide. It's not going to stop, and it's going to totally surprise you. Now, I've already kind of hinted at the whole thing is driving the devil out of creation, right? This is the, this is the point of the Bible. The devil stole us. Jesus came, took us back. That's going to happen kind of in a, a micro event next, though ahead of time kind of thing, or a picture of what the salvation of man from the devil looks like with two stories that start at verse 
35 of Mark chapter 4. Uh, the first one, uh, actually both of these stories, very well known. They show up in lectionary texts all the time, usually not next to each other, though. And so seeing that they're, they're right beside each other, I think, is part of the beauty here a little bit. The first one, though, your Bible probably says, mine says, you know, Jesus calms a storm. I think this is a wonderful understatement of what's about to happen. Uh, on that day, verse 35, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea. Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So a familiar story, uh, Mark has some, some little tiny pieces that the others don't pick up on, but um, I kind of want to kind of stick on the Jesus is human part to start with. Remember, this boat didn't just show up. In, in the other Gospels, it just shows up. Mark placed this boat like three chapters ago. They've been moving on and off the boat because the crowds are so big. Jesus needs to get some space. And he spent some time actually teaching from the boat a couple times to have that space. And now it would appear that just in order to get some sleep, he's got to go out on the boat in the middle of the ocean. And I do want you to think about the Sea of Galilee like it's the ocean, because to the people who lived there, it was. The ocean wasn't anything more except maybe the Mediterranean Sea, which still is not the ocean, right? So, so the life they lived, though, as a seafaring people was like what we think of oceaneering is today. It was dangerous, it was dangerous. It was fraught with danger. Storms could come up off of the Mediterranean over some of the hills on the northwest side of, of Israel and swoop down into the Sea of Galilee and create storms that would make waves quite significant. Six to 12 feet kind of stuff. Big, big waves for a lake. You know, but not a lake. It's a sea. It's like a great lake kind of thing. So uh, Jesus has to go out onto Lake Michigan in a little yacht to get away to get some rest because people keep touching him because he keeps healing them when they do. Huh? And he goes out there. And so no wonder he's asleep on the boat. Right? Like, Mark actually explained why he's asleep on the boat. The dude's exhausted. Dude's absolutely exhausted because he's a man. Huh? And yet here comes, I mean, who's in charge? Who's in charge of this storm? Who sent this storm? You know, where'd it come from? And here comes this giant storm. One more thing, though, that is going to help, I hope, uh, us see kind of what's going on here. The, the Hebrew people, pious as they were, committed to Torah as they were, taught by the Pharisees in Moses' seat as they were, it doesn't mean they were not a superstitious people. Uh, like most people, they were, they were superstitious. Right? I'm sure you have weird little things you do without thinking about it sometimes. But one of the things that they held to uh, was, let me say this differently, there were some assumptions about geography that their superstitions got from the Old Testament, not so much 
as if it's like scientific, but more as a picture of what is real. God, it sounds weird probably, but so when, when they say that the demons are in the wilderness where the jackals are, and, and that God says this in his word, like they took that very literally. So they're like, the demons are actually more often in the desert than maybe in the swamp kind of thing. And in this regard, the way they viewed the sea wasn't the way we view it. It wasn't just a lake. It, it was a place where underneath it, Hades was that is the abode of the dead the realm of darkness and shadow and the portal to getting there went through the sea now it wasn't only hebrews that had this superstitious metaphoric symbolic belief many other groups did including the greeks and and other ancients so what we should take from this is just this they get on a boat they go out in the water and what happens next isn't just a storm it's a demonic assault it is the gods of the ocean rising up to thrash and crush. And let me just give you one more level of it. Uh, the Hebrew word for, for the sea is yam, you know, kind of like a yam, spelled like a yam, yam. But that is also the name of the Phoenician god of the sea. So, you know, they didn't go to the ocean. They went to Poseidon. Right? It's like how they would have said it. Let's go fishing in Poseidon. Only it wasn't Poseidon, it was Yom, right? The, the Phoenician version of Poseidon. Huh? And so here they are with Poseidon's triton coming up out of the water, right? And throwing down darkness on them. And they don't think Poseidon, Yom is good. They don't worship Yom, they're terrified of Yom. And so they wake up, Jesus, don't you care? We're about to die here. Which gives all sorts of fun. Like clearly they don't believe Jesus is gonna die on a cross then, do they now? I mean, it's one of those neat things. If you know you're going to die on a cross when you're 33 and you're 27, you, you could jump off a temple mount. Ah, you see what I did there, I hope. Um, he, he knows he's not going to die. They wake him up. They're afraid he's going to die. And he asks this marvelous question. Let's kind of dig back in the text here a little bit. Um, uh, verse 39. Well, first he, first he rebukes. Verse 39. He awakes when they wake him up. He rebukes the wind and the sea. See why I don't like calling it calming the sea i mean there's going to be a calm not wrong but does he does he just calm the sea hey hey see you need to rest a little you know let me rub your neck a little no 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 he rebukes it as if it's a person that should know better than to bother him it's really something peace be still uh, i think i shared last service you know I'm at a point where with my, my one-year-old German shepherd that if, if I'm here and he's over there and, and I see he's got his nose going down in something that I don't want him to put it down into, and I go, Pfft. he goes, hmm, wasn't doing it, I swear. You know? huh? um, uh, Jesus does that to nature. <laughs> Jesus does that to nature. Peace be still. He, he shuts it up. Yeah. Um, I turned the page here. There we are. And the wind ceased and there was, there is a great calm. Uh, do you remember how in Revelation there's a sea before the throne and it's calm like glass? Yeah. Um, the sea being the abode of darkness is partially connected to how chaotic the sea is. There's always waves in the sea. You get, you get any little body of water together. There's going to be waves there. They start moving. It's not still. 
Yeah, that's chaos at work in the ancient mind. And Jesus comes along and he takes the thing that is the symbol of chaos and he just moves it right over. And again, in Revelation, you see he's got the throne and the sea is glass. You can get a puddle to look like glass. You try to get Lake Michigan to look like glass. But that's that's the power Jesus exercises. And that's what Mark wants us to see. Uh, But then verse 40. Hey, guys, so uh, you don't believe, right? (laughs) He kind of asks, you know, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And Mark wants us to ask that question, too, and kind of be like, yeah. They don't know he's the son of God. They think he's important. They think he's valuable. They think he's a prophet. They're going to follow him. But they don't understand him as God's answer yet. They will, right? But Mark is, again, trying to drive us to see how hard that is, how much the flesh works against you on this. And then, so what do they do? They were filled with great fear, right? He says, are you afraid? They're like, yes. (laughs) Uh, And then they say, who is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. And, And Mark wants you in the back of your head to be saying, I know who this is. How do they not know who this is? Uh, I know who this is. What happens next is the same story, just upside down. Right? So we have, we have the two sides of the same coin. He, he went out into the abode of Poseidon Yam and silenced his darkness and made his abyss into calm and quiet. Now he's going to go face to face with some actual demons. They're just hanging out in this, this guy. Golly, what a thing. Chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, um, also sometimes called the Gadarenes. It's the north side of the Sea of Galilee. It's part of the Tecapolis, I believe. Uh, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Remember, Mark's preferred term for the demon isn't demon but unclean spirit. That's going to help tie the pieces together even more here in a moment. This man with the unclean spirit, verse 3, he lived among the tombs, which would have been like caves back then, more than like a graveyard, right? We, we put them underground. They tended to use caves um, with stones. Uh, but he lived amongst, you know, dead bodies, uh, out, out in the, the decay. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Um, It it doesn't tell us a lot really there, but that description lines up pretty well with what medicine men and witch doctors do in pagan societies. Okay, this isn't some guy who just went to seventh grade and then bam, there was a legion of demons and he got stuck in the tombs. Like this was a guy who did this to himself to gain power from the demons. But that's the likelihood here. And that cutting himself, that's part of it. If you aren't aware of how cutting yourself as spiritual practices made quite the hit the last 15 or so years in youth culture, um, you ought to be. 
Uh, it's, it's terrifying, uh, not only in terms of its connection to self-mutilation just in general, and anorexia and other types of things like that, um, but also the connection to demonic practices, the inviting of spirits by means of blood. Right. I mean, think it's blood magic. It's just it's wicked at the highest level. This guy in the tombs, he's doing necromancy and blood magic, probably right? talking to the dead kind of thing. This guy is so far into the witchcraft horde that, in fact, he's got a horde inside him and he knows a bit. Right. Uh, he sees Jesus. Verse six. He sees him from afar. He ran and fell down before him. Can you see him? You're you're pulling up the boat onto the shore. And there's this lunatic going, rah, rah, you know, running down the shore at you, screaming. And what's he say? Crying out with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Man, you know, I mean, it, wow. It's just another day at the office for Jesus or something. But um, this demon's got some... Some bluster, don't you think? Uh, I lost my place on the text, so I'm just taking a moment to find the text again. Goodness gracious. There it is. What have you to do with me only occurs as a construction language one more time in the Bible. What am I to you? That, that question. And the only other time it's used, it's going to surprise you. It's Jesus to his mother at the wedding at Cana. Remember when she asked him to make the wine? Yeah, and he's like, uh, uh, what are you to me? Uh, only other place this is used. Uh, some scholars have discovered this. It's kind of a formal way of talking. It's not rude, actually. It's, it's like a, a formal plea for understanding in a public event kind of thing. Like, like you're, he's saying publicly, you don't have the right to do what you're doing. So when his mother says, make the wine now, he's like, mom, this is, this is out of place. It's kind of what he said, right? Now the demon is saying this to Jesus. You're out of place, dude. You're not supposed to be here. And so I think, demon, I have the right to tell you not to do something because I have the right to be here. That's how the demon sees it. And that's how it was. And can you see how the demons don't quite know what Jesus is up to? Like, like they don't know this isn't going to work out for them. They think they have a chance, it would seem. Uh, but then again, I adjure you by God. He calls on God's name. Do not torment me. He, see how he also knows what is the Messiah going to come to do? Torment the demons. That's, that's what he's going to come to do. <laughs> uh, this is good news for us. It's good news for us. So he's fallen down. He's shouting at Jesus. Jesus asks him his name. Uh, not a lot of conversation usually with Jesus and the demons. Usually he just silences them. But in this case, he asks his name and it's kind of famous, right? The guy replies, my name is Legion for we are many. But does that mean there's an actual legion of demons there? Or does that mean that there's just more than one? Um, is it his proper name? When demons link up together, do they like make bigger demons like Voltron? I mean, people can argue about all sorts of weird stuff here. Uh, the point is, is that this is a powerful, powerful event. Jesus has gone from casting out little demons to casting out a demon nobody else could cast out. So now he's going to cast out an army of demons. Things are escalating. The conflict is rising, right? And then the demons begged, but it says he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. 
They wanted to stay in the Holy Land. Weird, weird. Um, now, verse 11, also weird, especially if you've never heard this story before, you don't know anything about the Bible, and the next thing that happens is the demons want to jump in the pigs. you got to be like, this is strange stuff, because it is. A great herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside there, and they, the demons, begged him, Jesus, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. And all that is just, just, again, weird. It's a strange story. But there are some pieces that can, can tie it in a little. And, and one of them is going to help is to remember that the pig in the Hebrew culture and really the Old Covenant uh, is not a clean animal. Now, you like bacon, right? Most of us like bacon. Yeah, so we all like bacon, okay? But, but you couldn't. You weren't allowed to then. Christianity, food is free. Uh, uh, but then you couldn't. And so these pigs are being kept not by Jews, but by pagans, by unbelievers. And they are a, an abomination to the Jews. They're an abomination to Jesus' people and their culture. And so what you have then is these demons asking as unclean spirits to enter into some other unclean form uh, that's, that's not human. And Jesus does the weird thing of saying, sure, go ahead. I won't drive you out of the country, even though... Isn't he here to do that? Isn't he here to cast them out? Go ahead, enter the demons. Oh, wait, maybe I am here to drive you where I want you to go because all those pigs then go running off the hill into, it's like lemmings, right? They go running into the water and they all die. Can you imagine all the dead pigs in the water? How just disgusting this would be. But now remember that all of that sea is the abode of darkness and evil, uh, a great abyss, and here is Jesus on the land as the son of God, having proven he has power over the abyss. And he takes the demons and he puts them all in the abyss. They're not coming back out. This is a foreshadow, right? This is what he does with the devil when he dies. So he does all of them when he dies. He puts them into his wounds and they're crushed forever. But then at the end of time, of course, we're going to see the great fire that's prepared for them which is the final abyss, the, the final Gehenna and hell that the devil and all his angels will be cast into by the power of Jesus' blood. All of that here as a moment, kind of a foretaste, right? Uh, the story building and him showing again, what's he here to do? Wield the authority of God in order to save people from, from the wicked things that have haunted and stolen us from God's mercy and love. A few more verses here, verse 14 uh, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, right? They go tell everybody, hey, this guy killed our pigs with demons. <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, the guy who used to be our witch doctor is not our witch doctor anymore or, or something like that. They get people to come out. They come out to see what had happened. It's not every day, right? They don't have TV. Uh, and they came to Jesus and saw the formerly demon-possessed man, the one who had been had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Like, shouldn't it be the other way around? Shouldn't they be like, oh, dude, you did that for him? Wow. What about for me? Like, nope. Nope. They're, they're afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Beg him. Beg him. <laughs> 
please go away. Please go away. Why? Well, I mean, again, there's 2,000 dead pigs in the water down the, down the shore right now, right? Like, that's gross. And he did that, and that was weird. And this guy, even if he's not their witch doctor, and they all really wish he would be healthy, that's great. That's scary. That's weird. When the crazy guy is suddenly normal and fine, like, you're, when's he going to come back to crazy again, right? You're, you're, you don't know. They're confused. They tell him to go away. Uh, verse 17, uh, verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. So the crowd's begging him, go away. This man's saying, please take me with you. Like, you just, you just changed my life. Jesus, take me with you. And, and Jesus says, no. 19, he did not permit him. But said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Jesus is going to go back across the water to Judea, or, well, Galilee. Um, and in a little while, a couple chapters, he's going to come back to the same region. And those same people who were saying, go on away, go away. They're now going to be just a massive crowd saying, please help us, please help us. And it's all, I think, from this guy. Go and doing just what Jesus said, right? To your friends, tell them how much the Lord has done for you. What does that mean? How he has had mercy on you. One more thing. It kind of, we're at our time. I, I wanted to fit this in earlier. I don't want to lose it. Would you, you can lose your place, your mark. I want you to turn to Psalm 65. I'll give you a page number. When we get there, Psalm 65. Hopefully this morning I've, I've walked us toward the cross. You've seen the power of Jesus as a man. You know what he's here to do. You're excited about what's coming next. You're making these connections and seeing how Mark is working in certain ways and all of it. And you have heard me say a number of times now, who is this guy? Who is this guy? Because that's what Mark is driving at. Who is this guy? And so here he is, again, dominating the demons, dominating nature in the storm. And now let's roll it back and look at what God says about such things uh, here in Psalm 65, verse 7. Well, let's start. Let's start. Actually, we're going to scoop back. We're going to read it all. Psalm 65, verse 1. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. And to you, vows shall be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, here it is, verse 7, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. What I want you to see there is who stills the sea? God does. So when Jesus stills the sea and they say, who is this guy? I mean, it shouldn't be any question, right? Who's Jesus? He's God. Christ has died. Christ will come again. He is risen. 
He's not going to hide. He's not going to stop. He's absolutely going to surprise you. And the same is true for you. You're not going to hide. You're not going to stop. You're going to surprise the world with the truth that Jesus is in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please rise for prayer.